Again, welcome this morning. Uh, Russ was here early this morning, and uh, the way that we try to cool this room down is we open these doors and we try to bring in the cooler air in the morning. When I came here this morning, it was 83 degrees in this place. We spent about two hours uh, bringing in that cool air, and I will have you know I just checked that thermostat, and it is still exactly 83 degrees in this place. So, uh, welcome. If you ever want to wear shorts or a tank, totally reasonable, okay? We're, uh, we're a casual environment in that way. Um, I want to speak just real quickly to one of our values this morning, our value of engage. Engaging is the intentionality of being with one another in active ways, the intentionality of being with one another in ways that are meaningful in community. We've got tons of ways to engage in this community. We've had our summer short series, uh, which one of them just closed, the art short, but we've got a few more opportunities uh, through that summer series. If you're interested in, we can get you connected with those people. We've got opportunities to jump into group uh, in various ways. We've got volunteer opportunities here. We've got a community, uh, a community movie night that's coming up. I believe it's August 3rd. Britt, is that right? August 3rd. Uh, so families, people, that I think the movie is, what's the movie, Britt? Princess Bride, classic, a classic movie. Uh, it's one of those ones that's down at the pavilion. And uh, if you've got a family that wants to go and see that movie or you just want to go and see that movie, go and show up and be a part of something that our community is doing, our larger community in Spokane, and be with other folks from this place. I say all that to say, engage. Find a way to be involved. Find a way to be with one another because it is absolutely the best, best way to live. So uh, that's my encouragement to you this morning. We are going to continue our series through the book of Proverbs. We're going to be looking at Proverbs 11. If you've got a Bible or uh, you use the app on your phone or whatever else you might have, let's open that up right now. Proverbs 11, and I'm going to give a bit of an overview of this chapter. But the thing that's most important, which we'll come back to, is that our proverb opens with the idea of a scale. Okay, the idea of a scale. This is what it says. A false balance is an abomination to the Lord, but a just weight is his delight. A false balance is an abomination to the Lord, but a just weight is his delight. So this image takes us back to the law of Moses, where God commands his people to have and to use honest scales when they're dealing with their business. Let me read these two passages, give you a little bit of context. Leviticus 19, uh, 35, 36 says this, do not, uh, do not use dishonest standards when measuring length, weight, or quantity. Use honest scales, honest weights, an honest ephah, and an honest hen. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt. In Deuteronomy 25, 13 through 16, it says this, do not have two differing weights in your bag one heavy, one light. Do not have two differing measures in your house, one large, one small. You must have an accurate and honest weights and measures so that you may live long in the land the Lord your God is giving you. The Lord your God detests anyone who does these things, anyone who deals dishonestly. So these few verses, the Leviticus passage, the Deuteronomy passage, come out of this larger context of a set of cleanliness laws designed to set apart Israel from the surrounding nations. And more specifically, these two 
laws having to deal, or these two passages having to deal with this idea of a scale and measurement and weight, captures the heart of God towards justice and fairness in their economic system. As Old Testament scholar Johanna Van Wyck-Boss states, today, also for Christians, Leviticus may at least serve to remind the community of believers that a faithful life consists in an orientation both to God and neighbor, and that the approach to God needs to be studied and practiced. A way for living in the holiness of God is established throughout the Torah, and while many of these 600-plus laws seem somewhat arbitrary to us, it does create a pattern for how people are to be with God, for how people are to be with their neighbor. And strict adherence to these laws would completely change the orientation of how individuals understood their life with God. So if we go back to Proverbs 11, Solomon, our author, takes the reader back to this Levitical law about weights and measurements with the purpose of reminding the hearer of the pattern that God establishes and that this would be the pattern that the wise would follow. Now, it's not just about the scales, but it's about intention. It's about fairness. It's about honesty. It's about integrity. Like a lot of scripture, it's about the thing behind the thing, right? It's about conduct and goodness in the person and how they deal with the other. And it outlines the difference between the wise who would be fair in all areas of their life and the foolish who are really only concerned about their own self-interest. And the rest of Proverbs 11, our chapter this morning, then kind of paints in this picture, contrasting the conduct of the wise and the conduct of the foolish. Here are a couple of verses. Verse 3 says this, The integrity of the upright guides them, but the unfaithful are destroyed by their duplicity. Verse 9 says, With their mouths the godless destroy their neighbors, but through knowledge the righteous escape. Verse 17, Those who are kind benefit themselves, but the cruel bring ruin on themselves. Verse 20, the Lord detests those whose hearts are perverse, but he delights in those whose ways are blameless. Verse 24, the person, one person gives freely, yet gains even more. Another withholds unduly, but comes to poverty. 30 verses that fill in this picture of the wisdom of the righteous and the foolishness of the wicked. This is the power of of the book of Proverbs, right? Little kind of pithy, practical sayings that clearly give us indication of what it means to fully live in the wisdom of our Lord. That's our chapter this morning, but I want to take the rest of the morning and look specifically at this idea of honorable scales and ask the question of ourselves, how might this idea from a long, long time ago actually speak into our lives here and now. So let's get an idea of what scales actually mean to the original people that were reading this. Scales in the Old Testament were used primarily in the marketplace for weight and measurement. 
Okay? Their economic system was built on the ability to accurately weigh the form of payment against the commodity needed. There were no credit cards. There were no Venmo, right? There was no crypto that you could just change. You had to actually weigh things in order to make a purchase, in order to barter. Their currency was actually nothing more than uneven lumps of metal that were formed into bars called ingots. And then they weighed these things, and a certain amount of ingots would equal a shekel or a talent. There weren't coins at this point. It was a weight and measurement system. And so the balancing of scales is a critically important piece of trade. It was not uncommon for individuals to tamper with their scale for their own gain, this being a matter of significant injustice, a way to manipulate the financial system, to take advantage of the other person for their own self-interest. And this is why God detests dishonest scales, not just because he desires fairness, but because God is a God of justice. Now, outside of your bathroom scale, our interaction with scales at this point are probably somewhat limited, right? But the idea of balance, balancing something, is pretty commonplace. Balance comes from the Latin meaning two separate plates or dishes. So if you have that image of a scale, there's two dishes, and when those things even out, that's finding a correct balance, this idea is first seen in the 1500s, and it directly relates to an equal weight on two sides of the scale. And over the last 500 years, this idea of balance has expanded into many different things in our current cultural understanding. Here's a couple examples. If your dinner plate has a thumb's worth of fat, a palm's worth of meat, and a fistful of veggies, then you're probably eating a what? Couldn't hear anything. A well-balanced meal, right? <laughs> That's where we get that, a well-balanced meal. If you were able to pay your bills, maybe save a little bit of money, maybe give a little, money, a little bit of money, then you've probably struck a good balance with your finances. Those who are seemingly able to do all things that are asked of them and presented to them with great grace seem to be pulling off a balancing act. If you imagine those scales again, on one side you have your job or your vocation, and on the other, the things that you enjoy and your relationships. And our journey is to try to seek a good work-life balance, right? It hasn't really been until recently that balance began to refer to an actual state of being. It was always connected to measuring weight, but now we use it more in this idea of a state of being, and being balanced as a person has become a pretty important concept for us. Now, some do it better than others, but our common pursuit of balance in our individual lives, I think, is an honest and reasonable journey, something that we would all say, yeah, that seems like a reasonable journey for the individual. To achieve balance means that all various things and responsibilities and relationships in life have equaled out, that all the different areas of life are given a specific and intentional weight with the hope that the plates on each side 
of the scale maintain a healthy level. It's not easy in our modern context as things can wildly get out of balance quickly. This is why we so esteem those who seem to achieve this healthy balance. But the more that I thought about this this week, the more I began to try to picture this idea of what does balance look like in my life, the more I had this kind of like nagging question come up in my mind. What if I'm marveling at the wrong thing? What if this idea of balance in my life is not actually the thing I'm trying to pursue? And I've wondered in this week if, as disciples, balance is a false idea that we've been duped into believing, that we've been duped into pursuing, that in pursuing balance, we have believed that our Christian faith and the practices and the rhythms and the values associated can be placed on one side of the scale, and that those things measure against the other areas in our life. Now, certainly, we wouldn't want to admit this, right? I didn't want to admit this initially. I wanted to right away easily conclude that, well, my faith is the most important, and then my family, and then everybody else has a different list that goes through three through ten, right? For some people, country's next. For other people, it's friends next. For some, it's job, it's health, it's whatever. But usually, most people would say, well, faith and then family. But does how I spend my time, does how you spend your time and your energy and your resources match that order of priorities that we so easily talk about? And I would argue for most of us, our Christian faith and practice is on one end of the scale, balancing with any other number of things on the other end of the scale. And if that is true, this is how the idea of a false balance might speak to us in this time. You see, Jesus was pretty clear about the unbalanced nature of the call in our lives. In Luke 14, 25 through 30, Jesus explicitly teaches to this idea. It says this, large crowds were traveling with Jesus and turning to them, he said, if anyone comes to me and does not hate father and mother, wife and children, brothers and sisters, yes, even their own life, such a person cannot be my disciple. And whoever does not carry their cross and follow me cannot be my disciple. And he goes on to give this word picture. Suppose one of you wants to build a tower. Won't you first sit down and estimate the cost to see if you have enough money to complete it? For if you lay the foundation and are not able to finish it, everyone who sees it will ridicule you, saying, this person began to build and was not able to finish. This is not a call to hate our family, but rather a teaching illustration to dismantle the idea that a disciple should balance their love and devotion to God with the other things in their life. It's hyperbole to say that compared to your love of Jesus, the love that you have for your family should look like hatred. He is saying that discipleship, by its very nature, is unbalanced. A life truly unbalanced 
towards the things of the kingdom should give us pause, right? This is why he then goes in and he gives this beautiful picture of counting the cost. He invites us to say, sit down and actually think about what it means to be a disciple. When was the last time that any of us actually sat down and pushed the numbers for what it means to tip the scales towards following the way of Jesus? So let's use this metaphor. Let's expand upon this idea a bit because I love this image of building a tower. The tower for many of us was started years ago. It's a tower that we know will never fully be finished. There are seasons where we're able to keep building up, but then one of the bottom floors floods and we need to refocus our energies on its remodel. It's a constant and daily work of building and updating and redoing and maintaining. And there are moments certainly where we question it, but we hold on to hope that it's worth it. We hold on to hope that the tower we're building can bring beauty to this world. Here's what I know about the tower as it relates to our discipleship is that it demands all of us. The project is too great and too important to be neglected or to be balanced with the other properties that you might be interested to purchase. And the cost is great. Materials and labor and interest rates don't always seem that favorable. And so this is where tough decisions have to be made where discipline and sacrifice and commitment become the practices helping you to sustain your project, helping you to keep building, to keep updating, to keep maintaining. I don't know if you have felt it, but more so now than ever, it seems as though people are standing on the edge of the construction site, evaluating just how much effort they're willing to put in to continuing to build their tower. I don't think this is just a function of COVID. I don't think it's the political unrest we feel in our culture. I don't think it's the societal decay that we all can point to. I think it's been the temptation of discipleship since the very beginning. That question of how many things, how many of my own desires can I still hold on to and follow Jesus? We are constantly negotiating to find the allowable balance between doing what we want while still claiming Jesus as Lord. It often creeps into our thoughts like this. These are some thoughts that I've had. I know generosity and giving are important, but I work hard. So I can kind of do with my money what I want. I've earned that right. I know that gathering in a community is at the heart of a Christian experience, but to be honest, it's not always that convenient for me. Jesus's instruction to love the enemy doesn't seem all that practical anymore. God's heart is for justice but that would require a pretty significant sacrifice and effort if I were to follow him in that way. The kingdom is about radical inclusivity, but there are some people that I don't feel really comfortable 
letting in. Each of us, I think, has had these thoughts or similar thoughts, and I know that because I've had them. And each time, it's a temptation to balance the scales back towards our own self-interest. And as we concede to that temptation, the more the plates level out and the more we're insulated with our own comfort and our own safety. This type of back and forth between what do I have to sacrifice versus what can I still hold on to is a pretty dysfunctional and tiring approach to discipleship. Stanley Howarath says this, it's hard to remember that Jesus did not come to make us safe, but rather to make us disciples, citizens of God's new age, a kingdom of surprise. Proverbs 11, if we go back to our chapter this morning, tells us that God detests the injustice of dishonest scales. And for us, I think it speaks to our need to recognize our temptation to create this false balance that I can be a faithful follower of Jesus and still hang on to all the things that I want to hang on to, still do all the things that I want to do. It reminds us that true discipleship is weighting your life, your thoughts, and actions completely toward the way of Christ. In following Jesus, there is no point of negotiation. There is no trial period. There is no allowance given for our own things. It's a radical and fully subversive way of life. As Eugene Peterson explains, Christian discipleship is a decision to walk in his ways steadily and firmly, and then finding that the way integrates all our interests, passions, and gifts, our human needs, and eternal aspirations. It's the way of life we were created for. And this is how we are brought back to where I started this morning in Old Testament law in the book of Proverbs. Since the beginning, God has desired all of us. God has invited us to be a part of a remarkable journey, but it requires everything that we have. The entire narrative of Scripture, the 600-plus Old Testament laws, the wisdom sayings of Proverbs, the parables of Jesus are all attempts to help those who want to give their lives completely to God to weight their scale appropriately to tip their scale toward the way of discipleship. If you look at the movement of the Israelites in the Old Testament, or you look at the life of Solomon, the author of Proverbs, you look at the life of Peter, constant in all their stories is the trial and error of trying to balance their scales, trying to equal their own self-interest with the call of Yahweh in their lives, only to find that time and time again, the balance they thought they could achieve is a false balance because God desires all of us. What's easily identifiable in reading through the chapters of Proverbs 11 is that those who are wise are the ones who recognize just how real and easy the temptation is to try to hold on to those things in our life and balance against the weight of our discipleship. Each saying expresses that there is a way of the righteous and faithful, and then there is everything else. 
that the wise have fully tipped their scales toward a life of love and devotion of God, towards kindness and goodness and self-control, that every action and thought is given over wholly to God, and in so doing, they can live in the freedom and the joy and the peace of the kingdom. So let me close with this quote from Reuben Job. He says, in offering ourselves as fully as we can, we discover the cost of discipleship. For to bind our lives to Jesus Christ requires that we try to walk with him into the sorrows and suffering of the world. Being bound to Jesus Christ, we see barriers broken down and we are led to places we have never been before. Having offered ourselves to Jesus Christ, we may expect to become the eyes, the ears, the voice, and the hands of Jesus Christ in the world and in the church. The cost of salvation, it's completely free and without cost. The cost of discipleship, only our lives. Nothing more and nothing less. While this life is not an easy one, this life of discipleship, it is worth the cost because there is nothing greater than communion with the Lord of creation. So Newcom, here is where I hope we end this morning. That each one of us can leave here and honestly take an assessment of our own lives as disciples, as our own lives, as followers of Jesus. To be able to ask the question, is our following of our Lord just another thing that we are trying to balance with our lives, or are our scales tipped toward extravagant love and radical grace and redemptive justice for the poor, the powerless, and the forgotten? Because this is what it means to be a disciple. There should be no shame or no no guilt in this message. It's not trying to induce feelings like that, but rather an encouragement to seize the opportunity a challenge to question your notions of balance and maybe to push to start giving greater weight in your life to the things that you know to be true of Jesus. Amen.